0: I'm Stuart Chittenden, and this is Lives, a show about conversation, community, and the people that bring community to life. My guest today is Todd Hatton, Programme Director at the Omaha National Public Radio member station, KIOS. Todd Hatton is an award-winning radio documentarian and longtime public radio broadcaster. The Kentucky native moved to Omaha with his wife Angela in 2018 and has served as program director for NPR member station KAOS since June. His documentary work has focused on history, culture and infrastructure, tackling such subjects as the American Civil War, the coal industry, the Tennessee Valley Authority and the man at the center of the 1925 monkey trial, John T. Scopes. At present, Todd is working on a new podcast, Made in the Middle, How the Midwest Made American Culture, with fellow KIOS producer Emily Chen Newton. He's also working with his KIOS colleagues to build the station into a multimedia platform that celebrates the unique culture, stories, art, and history of Omaha and Nebraska. Todd, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. So I actually feel quite thrilled, um, but also mildly intimidated that, that, <laughs> I, that I'm this side of the mic and, and you're the other side of the mic when when you have such a long pedigree in radio. So so let's, let's start at the beginning then with how you started in radio
1: in a not very intimidating way. Um, Actually, (laughs) well, I was an undergrad um, at a school in my hometown of Paducah, uh, Paducah Community College. And uh, I took a broadcast production class taught by a man named John Stewart, who at the time we thought was the oldest man in the world and certainly was one of the wisest I'd ever come across. And he approached me and and one other of my uh, classmates to see if we would be interested in getting into radio and I I didn't really I was working at a peach joint at the time so anything that wasn't working in front of an oven you know for five six hours a day was fine with me so I said yes and next thing I know I was a a part-time employee at WKYX WKYQ which is an AM kind of adult contemporary station and an FM country station and I ended up working more in the countryside of it and in the news department and uh, I worked there for about four or five years, got out of it, went and did other things for a little while, and then I was still kind of out of it after the turn of the century, which is a weird thing to be able to say. And my wife was uh, doing some schoolwork at Murray State University in Murray, Kentucky, not far from where we're both from. And their Morning Edition host had uh, up and gone to Lexington, Kentucky, and so they were like beside themselves trying to find a new Morning Edition host, which is one of those positions that it's it's the, the hours are rough, really rough, because you have to be there almost so early in the morning that it's the night before. I mean, it's ridiculous. And finally, she ha- bumped into the program director and he had this fraught look on his face and she said, "What was what's the matter? And he said, well, you know, we need a Morning Edition host. And she said, well, you know, my husband's worked in radio. And he looked at her and said, what's your husband's name? And she told him and he went. Oh, and then just walked off with this thoughtful look on his face. (laughs) Two weeks later, I was hosting Morning Edition at WKMS in Murray, Kentucky, and I was there for about 10 and a half years.
0: What was it that made you say yes to the offer of a position that had you starting, as it were, the night before?
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well... It was the fact that the job was – once I got off the air during that board shift, um, it was kind of open-ended. You know, There were things that I was expected to do because I was also part of the news department. But there, I kind of was able to write my own tickets in that regard. And in fact, that's what led me to um, start working on a documentary. And this was I think in two thousand. Nine, knowing that we were coming up on the sesquicentennial of the American Civil War, and being in Western Kentucky, you, you it's kind of all around you, and uh, I thought, well, you know, we need to do something about that because this was an artery, this was a part of the theater of war, and and I I floated it to the powers that be, and they were like, well, what are we going to get out of this? And I thought, it's in your mission statement, <laughs> but and they were like, you know, the cost benefit analysis on this is not we don't really see a way of getting a whole lot out of it. And I went, okay, fine. And then started working on it on my own. And then I got about maybe half, three quarters of the way through it. And they figured out what I was doing. And they thought, well, you've put this much work into it. We might as well do something with it. And it aired, and because it had taken me like a, a year or two to get this done. And it aired. And then the next thing I know, we won uh, best documentary from the Kentucky Associated Press, which surprised me. I mean, it. I thought it was good. I I wanted to kind of fix a few things, and I eventually did, but I thought it was good. I didn't think it was great, but then again, I don't really ever think of what I do in those terms. So, I was really surprised, pleasantly so, to uh, to get that award. And then they were like, well, that worked out, so why don't we do something else? And uh, we started working on things like the railroads, the coal industry, and things like that.
0: I want to give you some space to kind of unpack some of those stories. Oh, sure. It almost sounds a little bit fortuitous, and maybe a little accidental, that you had this bandwidth at, um, at this first station as the morning host, but then you could craft some more of your own projects and so there was something I think it, it seems in you that is this, uh, I think you've described yourself as a history nerd, mm-hmm. so you have this opportunity. <laughs> I, yeah. So um, you embark on this documentary about the sesquicentennial of the, of, of the Civil War in mm-hmm. this region, and you mentioned it winning an award, and, mm-hmm. and I would imagine that this is all very um, motivating both for you and for the station. W- what was it about that story that seemed to make it stand out?
1: Well. <sighs> A lot of it is that having grown up in Western Kentucky, you kind of view it as like the world, everything is happening everywhere else, except in the little, the little one-horse town you grow up in. And then as I got older and I moved around a little bit more, I began to kind of get this idea of, well, you know, this there has to be something of significance here. And growing up in that area, you... it. it The American Civil War is just part of the landscape. The Commonwealth of Kentucky, 90% of its military-age men joined the Union Army in the outset of the war. You wouldn't know it to to look at it now. But in the first congressional district, the far western end, which is where I'm from, the uh, numbers were reversed. 90% of military-age men joined the Confederate Army. In fact, I think I have five direct ancestors, grandfathers, who were... In the, in the war. One of them, only one, was a Union soldier who uh, ended up marching into Atlanta with Sherman. Uh, the other four were Confederate officers and Confederate private soldiers. One of them was a prisoner of war at Elmira, New York. All of them sustained wounds. Uh, three of them actually were wounded in the same engagement, the Battle of Shiloh in 1862. One of them died of his wounds. and it's complicated and some of it is motivated by the fact that it is complicated because my great 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 grandfather alfred johnston was a lieutenant colonel in the confederate army he has a sons of confederate veterans camp named for him and he was a fire eater meaning he was uh, he wrote uh very extensively and passionately about seceding from the union and he was a slave owner now that Really, kind of put the exclamation point on all of this because he's just from that, you could it would be very easy to say that he was antithetical to just about everything I believe now, almost everything I believe now. But he was still an ancestor. Without him, I'm not here. So, in a weird way, I guess part of it was me trying to uh, personally square that circle. I don't know how to feel about him. I don't want to believe that he's evil, even though he participated in arguably one of the most evil practices in uh, this nation's history, this continent's history. But, you know, trying to figure that out and trying to figure out where this little area that is, I think, the grand total of people that are in that part of Kentucky are maybe 100,000, maybe. And I think that's pushing it. Did it matter? Was this a place of any significance? And come to find out, it's where Ulysses S. Grant made his reputation and the man that, you know, people always say, well, was a good general? Of course he was a good general. Who surrendered to whom at Appomattox Courthouse? And also to figure out, uh, I I also really learned a lot about why Western Kentucky is the way it is. It's always been conservative. you know, 1860 was very democratic. It was very democratic until fairly recently, actually, within the last 30 years. Now, it's very Republican. But the sensibilities of the people there have not changed. It's just the the parties evolved around them. It was very instructive to that degree and also to figure out how it fit in the grand scheme of things. I like to kind of... Irritate, I think, professional historians by saying that I can tell you right now where the American Civil War was won, the riverfront of Paducah, Kentucky on September 6, 1861, because that way, Grant was able to get his foothold into the Mid-South, which means he could get into the Deep South. You know, you don't have an Appomattox without a Chattanooga. You don't have a Chattanooga without a Vicksburg. You don't have Vicksburg without Shiloh. You don't have Shiloh without Fort Donelson. You don't have Fort Donelson without Paducah, Kentucky. And I remember talking to uh, Kendall Gott, who is the senior historian at the, uh, with the U.S. Army at uh, Fort Leavenworth. And I basically trotted that out, and he said, well, that's not wrong, dot, dot, dot. But, I mean, you know, that's, that's from a historian perspective, that's as close to a yes as you're going to get. But it was really interesting, and that really, I think you're right, it really did kind of uh, prod me to learn even more because it's, that area is much more than just the Civil War. I mean, that, even though it's been over for 150 years now, as some people would say it's still going, I'd be one of those people who say it's still being fought in a sense, but there's much more to that culture. And that's what prompted me to go and look at things like the railroad and the coal industry and the, this huge infrastructure project, Kentucky Dam.
0: so that you, you have this, uh, what seems to be a really deeply personal and in some ways challenging yet profoundly rewarding experience making this award-winning documentary. Right. So, of course, yeah. do some more. <laughs> uh, so so it sounds as if you you really threw yourself into that mm-hmm. with um, maybe the support of the station, but also maybe prodding them too to um, help you along the way. So, so what happened next?
1: It, it, they didn't take a lot of prodding, actually. They were the ones actually prodding me. Um. Someone suggested Kentucky Dam, and Kentucky Dam is this massive uh, navigation flood uh, control dam, hydroelectric dam as well, that is on the Tennessee River, not far from the mouth where it joins the Ohio. And it just so happens it's Tennessee Valley Authority, which my uh, brother, my father, my grandfather all worked for. Uh, My grandfather helped build the fossil fuel plant, the TBA plant that is near our hometown. And it's a very much of, a, of a, a culture there as well, and so I just really threw myself into it, how interesting it was that this massive public works project that's part of the New Deal, it's, it's the result of, of work like uh, people like uh, George Norris of Nebraska, strangely enough, uh, Franklin Roosevelt, you know, very, what you might say, are people you might say are now liberal politicians in a very conservative area. And I just absolutely threw myself in it because there's still conflict over it to this day. Um, The impoundment of the Tennessee River at that point displaced hundreds of people. And those hundreds of people didn't move very far away and did not have an easy time of it. And they had kids and those kids had kids. And they've never forgotten. There's an organization called Between the Rivers, which works very hard to maintain the memory of these places that are just gone. I mean, there are there maybe the occasional concrete foundation in the middle of the woods, really, it's because that whole area is now a national recreation area, 120,000 acres. And every once in a while, you'll find part of a root cellar, just apropos of nothing, in the middle of the woods, you know. But that was someone's home in a community that had celebrations and good things about it, and bad things about it, and it was a place that people were from. And it's just gone. And so these people work very, very hard to maintain the memory. And there are actually quite a number of uh, cemeteries that are still out there. Uh, in fact, there is an entire Catholic church out there in the middle of the woods on this bluff. And it's a little bitty. It's St. Stephen's. It's a little bitty. And we nobody knew, really could figure out why it was still there because TVA went through and just tore everything down. And I think it was because they just forgot it was there. <laughs> And so it's still there. And some gentlemen from uh, some of the nearby Catholic parishes went in and restored it because it's this old pre-Vatican II church, It's a beautiful little church. And occasionally the diocese will send a priest out there and they'll have a mass. It's really neat. But it just absolutely, it's it's very profound in that it reminds you that there was a living, breathing community around there, that this group that... um, doesn't exactly have the warmest feelings toward the Tennessee Valley Authority, work very, very hard, and they do amazing work. But that really uh, was also a, a labor of love in a way because my dad worked for TVA, and after he retired, he became an amateur photographer. And so when we did it, he actually put together the. We produced an actual physical CD of the documentary, and his Photo is on the front and on the back as well and he's credited with it. And I'm very proud of the fact that I was able to give my dad his only, but uh, nevertheless, a photographer's credit. Kind of something he'd always really thought he would get and he got it. And I was very happy to be able to give it to him. And again, um, we had just come out of a fundraiser and I knew that we had submitted it to uh, the Society of Professional Journalists for their um, uh, Sigma Chi Delta Awards, which are their bronze awards. And uh, the station manager comes out beaming. And I'm out there on the balcony just trying to decompress because fundraising and public radio is is hard. (laughs) It's really, really hard. And she she looked looked at me and said, guess what? And I said, what? And she goes, it won. And I went, what are you talking about? And she said, um, Kentucky Dam, Power for the People, won the award for best documentary in the, co- in the country. And she goes, you're going to Washington, D.C. in the National Press Club to go accept it. And I went, yes, I am. I am going to Washington, D.C. to go accept it, which actually kind of dovetailed nice. I was uh, nicely with another project I was working on at the time. I was going to be able to stop on my way there and do some more work there. And the uh, when you... You're sitting in the, the National Press Club. this is where the the, the, press, the White House Press Corps dinner is. I mean it's the same room. And you're sitting there and you're with all of these other incredible journalists who have done this incredible work and they play a little snippet from, uh, from your work, but they also show like a big graphic. And the, the really neat thing was is the, the photo that they put up there was the cover of the CD, my dad's picture. He wasn't able to be there then he was back home. And he passed away in 2016. Uh, But I really feel that uh, that particular documentary has a very special place in my heart for that reason, if nothing else. You know, that area being what it is in a fairly um, small community, it's, it's not uncommon to bump into people that know someone who is connected to all this history. Um, like for instance, again, my dad is a good example. He worked with a, a gentleman who was the nephew of John T. Scopes. So when I started working on the Scopes trial, he said, well, maybe you could talk to him. I don't know if he would talk to you. And I'm like, well, why wouldn't he talk to me? He goes, well, you have to understand. Conservative area, very religious, very Protestant, very fundamentalist, very evangelical. They don't have a very, an altogether too positive view of John Scopes. Like fine, but I made I, I made a lot of great friends outside of Paducah, uh, doing research on that, and learned a lot about again even more about the community because John Scopes is actually he was born there, raised there, and he's actually buried there now even though he was living in Texas and Louisiana and Tennessee and even Venezuela for a time. And then it uh, it prompted us to do even more and digging into more of the um, kind of the backstory of the community and some of the more prominent people in it. My favorite probably moment is we had a professor at Murray State University, a chemistry professor, uh, Dr. Bahamana Loganathan. ...who found out about a man named William Kelly who invented this method of producing steel... ...that is eerily similar to the Bessemer method of producing steel. Which if you know anything about metallurgy is is one of the reasons... ...that the Bessemer method of producing steel was pretty much the way we did it up until like the 60s or 70s. So from like the mid-1850s until then, skyscrapers, battleships, you know, made out of steel... It's a there's a, it, there's a lot that I could get really deep into that story, but it's, it's just a great bit of intrigue, you know. And this William Kelly gentleman supposedly developed this method before Henry Bessemer. They're now currently recognized as co inventors. Fair enough. It was originally going to be like a feature piece, maybe seven, eight minutes long. And it became this hour-long documentary, so we got to do something, do things like talk about how what iron is, where it comes from. Um, it comes from uh, what's left over when a star collapses when it dies, and it's expelled throughout. The, it's one of the most common elements in the universe, to the point where you know your blood is red for that reason. And so I get to play with sound effects and use Star Trek music, and I just had a big old time. But then to talk about how you make steel, I'm like, whoa, well, you know, if you listen to it, there's this, you hear this boom, 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 boom. It's from Conan the Barbarian, the part where his father tells him about the secret of steel. And so I basically started doing the speech in some ridiculous voice and he stops me and goes, no, 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 no. I was The co-host stops me and goes, oh, no, no, no. And so I do it seriously from then. And then we submitted that award. We submitted that documentary for the SBJ awards and it won. That really surprised me, a, sh- a station of our size to win two national awards like that, only a couple of years apart. And when I heard that we had won, I thought, you know what they're going to do? They're going to play that bit from Conan the Barbarian, <laughs> and they're going to play it in the National Press Club in Washington, D.C., under pictures of, like, these, like, John Chancellor and Walter Cronk, <laughs> and they're going to play that. And they did, which I found incredibly rewarding, (laughs) which also reminded me not to take myself entirely too seriously.
0: you spent a lot of time looking back to your ancestors Mm -hmm. and you spent some time looking at the history of the landscape and the people around you and some historical methods. Mm -hmm. You talked about dying stars. So now we're going back um, hundreds of millions of years. Let's jump back a little bit into your life. Mm -hmm. So tell us about your childhood.
1: I had a pretty good childhood. Um, If you had asked me that when I was 15, I probably would have Gone the opposite direction, but I had a great, I guess, a great set of parents. My dad uh, was gone a lot, but then again, it's because he was working a lot to put food on the table, roof over the head. And uh, my mom was at that point a uh, stay-at-home mom. Uh, when we got hit our teens, she went back to work. So I grew up in a very large, tight-knit family. Even though, I mean, it was just my mom, dad, me, and my brother, uh, but i had just a huge number of cousins i come from this large german catholic family so i have a ton of cousins in fact there are in i think there's only like an entire county in western kentucky that is nothing but cousins of mine <laughs> and it seems that way at least but and it was always i can't the, the word that pops in my head continually is warm i never felt neglected i never was neglected um my, my parents bent over backwards to give me and my brother every opportunity that they themselves didn't have. We always didn't always uh, actualize all those opportunities. I mean, we're kids, what do we know? Um, but I was just very fortunate that by the time I hit my mid-20s, I'd kind of gone, well, they're not that bad. <laughs> and, yeah, so I can't really – I don't really have anything bad to say about my child. It was really – I really enjoyed myself. We we went out to national parks. We went to Mammoth Cave. We went to Disney World. We visited with family in St. Louis to the point where, you know, I, I have a colleague of mine who is a, a St. Louis native and I can talk to him like I grew up next door, you know, which oddly enough is reflected in my um, – not, I'm not a huge basketball fan, but I do love watching hockey. It's weird because I come from a place where ice is just something that happens to other people. So I had wonderful grandparents on my mom's side. My, on my dad's side, they weren't around nearly as much. But my grandfather, uh, Bill Shelter, was kind of the patriarch and a man who enjoyed being a grandpa. And my father did not have the best relationship with his father. And so kind of glommed on to to my uh, mom's dad and really kind of took him as an exemplar when he started having grandkids. And my dad absolutely loved being a grandfather um, almost as much as my mom loves being a grandmother, you know. As I got older, I began to find out that it is not all that usual to be able to sit down and talk to your siblings like they're your best friend. I, uh, my younger brother is one of my best friends. I can t- talk to him about literally anything. And it doesn't, I can be apart from him for like a year or two years, but the minute we come back together, it's like, you know, we're kids again. And it's like that with a lot of my uh, a lot of my family and certainly a lot of my closest friends. It's weird how that works out. I think it's, I like to think it's because it's on some level I did something right and picking kind of people that'll stick with you for a while.
0: Where did this urge towards stories and history come from?
1: Well, part of me wants to say there was nothing else to do, but <laughs> the other part of me is um, I, I'm not entirely sure. I just kind of always enjoyed it my father really enjoyed it. Um, He had one of the most comprehensive World War II libraries you've ever seen. I probably uh, grew up knowing who uh, Erwin Rommel and George Patton were before anybody else. I mean, it's, it's astounding really. But he's, I think probably what it is, is my father, whether he meant to or not, my mother's also a huge reader of history as well. Not to the extent my father is, but I think what he did is he imparted to me a sense of the importance. You don't really know where you're going unless you know where you have been. It's just basic orienteering. And learning where we had been, uh, I can't take credit for this one, but it, I learned very quickly that history um, doesn't repeat itself, but it often rhymes. and. It almost everything I read in that regard kind of underscores that. And coming from the kind of family I did, um, I learned very early on that family is they will never you, you will always have your family. They will always be there. You may not like them all the time, but they're always there. And so I guess it was a curiosity of where that uh, sensibility came from that my brother and I began to dig even more deeply into our family's history. And so, you know, that's how we find people like, you know, a slave-owning great-great-great-great-grandfather, but also a Union soldier who marched into Atlanta with General Sherman. Uh, We found uh, that Daniel Custis was a distant cousin. Daniel Custis was Martha Custis's first husband. Her second husband was George Washington. So I'm not related to George Washington but I'm related to his kids. Yeah, it's it's you know, it's kind of like you're almost related to really interesting people. But uh, and going back even farther, uh uh it's really weird to think that and I, I kind of think of myself a small d democratic in the sense that I I don't I think of people as kind of um just people. No one's any better or any worse because of any circumstance. But it is nevertheless fascinating to find out that I have that that if I go back far enough in a straight line, one of my grandfathers wore a crown professionally. It's really interesting to find that out. But again, there's that sense of kind of continuity throughout the years. I remember watching a, a, a YouTube video. This uh, artist did a restoration. She, I think she was a forensic artist did a restoration on the tomb of Henry II, King Henry II of England, to where she basically recreated his actual face based on his funeral effigy. And it is a dead ringer for my younger brother. It looks just like him. And I thought, well, there's just some things that never come out of the family, do they? Blonde-headed, blue-eyed, and actually my brother has more hair than I am, but, and it is blonde. And his eyes are blue. I mean, it, it just, it was eerie. I even—I texted him almost immediately, you got to watch this because it looks just like you. But even more so, its um, it also taught me something valuable, that there are very few people on this planet, in my opinion, who do not have those stories to tell. And I i, I feel like I, if I had given enough time and resources, I could dig into anybody's genealogy and come up with someone who you would probably consider someone worthy of being looked up to or interesting or fascinating. And I think we all have those stories, each, each and every one of us. And, I, you know, as far as telling stories, well, you know, a large family like that, we have these get togethers. And, you know, being a kid, you can kind of circulate under the radar. And so you hear the adults essentially telling each other these great stories. Um, They ran into someone and they tell this epic length story and it's, it's full of color and personality and you can kind of get a sense of who they're talking about and what kind of person they are just from what they're saying and how they're saying it. And I was always fascinated by that to the point where, I mean, when the time came and I wanted to do grad work, I uh, got an an English degree, a a Master's of Fine Arts in English to do essentially that, to just tell stories and It's something I've always enjoyed, telling stories, obviously. Um, It's something I enjoy participating in, listening to stories. You never know what you're going to find out. You never know what connections you're going to be able to pull from it. And what is history if it's just one gigantic, intricate, beautifully embroidered, sometimes horribly uh, decorated story?
2: By my side, knowledge you be friends with mine. The cafe is out, but the candle knows you are to spoil your wine and says the bottom of your town.
0: Everything you just said is so beautiful. And it makes me want to segue into the role that radio, especially community radio, has in bringing to life and bringing to an audience, a contemporary audience, the history that you've unearthed and are unearthing, the stories that you are capturing to share with people. And I'm wondering about your own personal perspective on the medium of radio and also the role of public radio, in terms of community building?
1: Oh, hmm. well, so now we start with the easy questions. Um, well, you know, I, I, let me preface this by saying I am a true believer. I am one of those guys that gets a little misty when the national anthem is played. You know, uh, in fact, Irvin Cobb, who was a writer from my hometown, very rather prominent writer apparently, nobody knows him, used to say that you're not a real Kentuckian if you don't get teary-eyed when they play my old Kentucky home. And he's right. I do. That's horrible, but I do. Um, But I'm very much a true believer in the mission because God – because let's face it, I'm not – you know, you don't get rich in public radio. But what it does is so incredibly critical. It's public service. And I was raised to believe – and I do believe that public service is the highest calling a person can aspire to. The power is – it's beside the point. The influence beside the point. You are serving the public, and the name of the game is to uh, to do the, the most good for the most people, and it is as simple as that. So, getting into public radio, you know, getting out of commercial radio, um, where the idea is, you know, the bottom line, into a medium where the the bottom line is the people of the community completely on board with that. And when you consider that one of the biggest roles of public media, whether it's public television or public radio, is the facilitation of, of debate and discourse to expand horizons and things of that nature. And I think that it is something that the body politic in this country has always been sorely in need of. Things may seem particularly Contentious now, and they are. But they've always. There's that baseline of contention has kind of is a is a thread that's run throughout American history. If it's not this, it's was, it was um, it was Iran-Contra in the '80s, or it was um, Watergate in the '70s. It was Vietnam in the '60s. It was Korea in the '50s, and so on and so forth. You can always go back and find these kind of conflicts and contentions. But what has I think separates us as uh, as a nation is the remarkable potential that we have given the resources that we have that let's face it we don't always use well but if we did use them well everyone would have the ability to get the kind of to achieve the kind of discernment that would allow them to participate in this large debates um, I've heard American democracy referred to, referred to as the American experiment and they're absolutely correct and this would allow, this allows everybody that has ears, that has the ability to access this content, to be kind of, kind of a citizen scientist in this experiment, have the ability to influence, to influence it, to have their say, to tell their stories. And um, it's interesting. There's actually research on this, and I forget where I initially read this. Is that if you want to make a point, the most effective way to do that is to use a story. Abraham Lincoln knew that just intrinsically and look at what he managed to do for all his flaws. And he did have them, but for all his flaws, look what he managed to do. And you know, another prominent politician is Alvin Barkley who was Senate Majority Leader and Vice President of the United States and uh, he used the same technique to the point where I'd almost say it must be in the water out there, you know. I, I've never met people who were able to spin a yarn quite like people from there. But thinking, I, I don't know, that, that I know that's not necessarily true because I met people from Missouri and Nebraska and California and Florida that can all tell really, really good stories. I think it's just an intrinsically human thing, although my natural biases say that just Kentuckians are better at it. But, you know, we can debate that later. But I, that's one of the things I really like about public radio. It solicits those kinds of stories. But it's formatting, allows that story to kind of breathe, to unspool, so that you can kind of take it in. You don't have to cram it into 30 seconds. You can take five, six minutes to tell that story, or an hour. (laughs)
0: In that case, given from your bio, the listener will understand that you're relatively new into Omaha Uh and relatively new into the major NPR member in town um, from a a news and and jazz and storytelling perspective, which is KIOS. So as a program director, I would love if you would share for people what that means, because I'm not sure that people actually understand what the roles are within a public radio station and then, what is the story going to be for this community of KAOS?
1: Well, as a program director, it's my job. Well, basically, my, it's my what comes over the airwaves is my responsibility. Whatever it is, and sometimes that's good, and sometimes that gets angry phone calls, and I understand that That's part of the job. But it past that, it's uh, essentially managing personnel. And it's managing the content. If uh, we are looking to put a different kind of program on, then it's it falls to me to kind of suss it out. Um, if it's music, I work with a music director. If it's something else, you know, there's I will work work it through. Ultimately, the name of the game is whatever it is. Is the question becomes Does it serve the listener? That is my only concern. I've often joked about you know if if. The people of Omaha wanted an hour, uh, hour-long program of Mongolian throat singing. They would get it, not my bag, but they would get it because it's what they want. But on the other hand, you're always um, kind of walking that balance between what everybody wants and what your what your core listeners, I should say, what they are looking for from your station, and uh, bringing in fresh ears. And some, and you kind of got to take a step toward them so they will then take a step toward you. So maybe you need to put something that, dare I say, is not jazz on the airwaves. Well, because that's what a certain that demographic that you're looking to increase is going to want. Prime example of this is just looking at our demographics. You know, the public radio listener tends to be a little older. Well, I, I but I want people that are you know, 16 to 35. I want them to start listening as well because there's a lot of really great stuff and you never really know. You might listen for this one program and then catch some of this and next thing you know, you're listening to this as well and you become more invested in it. You find more use in it, more value in it. And, you know, radio is, I think, um, really has an advantage over television in that it is hands-free. You can do it while you're driving, you know, I do it while I'm driving all the time. Again, it it goes back to uh, that storytelling aspect, allowing a story to kind of you know, unspool. You know, you tell it in its own time. And and then let's face it, there is a kind of a uh, there's a cost benefit analysis that does go on, but it is I don't think it plays as necessarily as big a part in it as it would say in, in commercial radio, and all that goes into determining. When the newscasts will be, or it's seven o'clock on a Saturday night, what are we going to play, and things like that. But uh, I'm always on the lookout for new people who might become really solid public radio listeners. The station I came from is is like a smorgasbord. I mean, there's just there's any there's something for everybody. And in fact, I uh, there was a. Every Saturday, that station airs three hours of bluegrass, okay? It's Kentucky. That's just a thing. Um, And they used to have, and I think they still do from time to time, have concerts that are basically sponsored by the show, this bluegrass show. And there are people who listen to that station for three hours in a week, and it's that show. And they are members as well. They give to support this station. They don't listen to anything else. But that. And I think that's wonderful. And I wish it were – obviously, I wish it were more engagement. But the fact that they believe so much in this little piece of radio real estate that they will contribute, I think is fantastic. That's, I mean, then that's another component. What is, going to, what is going to bring people in and make them want to invest in something that I personally see as something of a public utility? Um, it is a public service, but it's also a, a utility. Uh, all you have to do is uh, look at uh, the, the local media's response to the flooding that's been going on around here. I mean, it's, it's popped up on the national news and things like that, but they're sourcing, you know, local television, local radio for it. Uh, in fact, I was told to be prepared for a call from NPR today. It didn't come, but I did hear the story that they ended up doing, and it was very good. So, I don't know, the, the next chapter in the story of KIOS, um, well, we're still drafting that chapter. <laughs> um, although, I will say this, I want to see more people listening, obviously, but I want to see more younger people listening. Uh, where I come from, you couldn't go very far without seeing a bumper sticker or t T-shirt or something that had our station's call letters on it. And I come here, and I, I don't see that as much. And I can kind of understand that. I It's a place, the town that I, that I was in was about 18,000 people, which I think is a city block here. And now I come to, I mean, the numbers I like to throw around is I came from the 289th radio market in the United States to like the 79th radio market. It's a huge leap. But the nice thing is that, if anything, public radio has taught me that, that doesn't necessarily mean that the people that live in an area that's you know three-quarter of a million to a million are any fundamentally different. So, you know, some people like jazz, some people like folk music, and they're everywhere. But I, I just uh, – I want to expand that circle because not only will that certainly guarantee the viability of the station going forward, but that means – We can offer more and more innovative content. Uh, I mean, we—you mentioned the 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 podcast at the top of this. That's part of it, and we've made—we haven't even finished it yet. Uh, But we've made wonderful contacts within the historical community, and learned a lot. But then again, I'm the kind of person that, when we moved here, I did a lot of research. You know, to find out that. That the man who designed the Ford Mustang was born here. I, I, my second car was a 1966 Ford Mustang. I love Ford Mustangs. Marlon Brando was born here. The Reuben was invented here, and my wife will tell you that I like a Reuben from time to time. You know, and the historical characters. I mean, you know, Mont, Montgomery Cliff, uh, Malcolm X. I mean, it's just an amazing, amazing place. And all for a, a town that I don't think. M- people give enough thought to, at least outside of of, of the region, and even some people within this community might not be aware of the truly remarkable place in which they live. And I've always thought that that was an important part of public radio is to help people kind of maybe not necessarily tell them that, but remind them of it, that it doesn't matter where you're from, there's always a good reason to be proud of being there, being from there. And the, the longer I am here... The more I am figuring that out and finding out more and more and more about it, uh, I mean, to the point where the first episode of this uh, podcast that we're working on, it's not going to be what you expect. I can just tell you that right now. It's not I'm not going to give anything away, certainly, but I'm, it's not going to be what you would expect coming out of Omaha.
0: I feel like that's the perfect place to stop because it just <laughs> leaves people hanging. <laughs> I, I'm so excited about that. Radio Show is supported by Humanities Nebraska, inspiring and enriching personal and public life by delivering opportunities to engage thoughtfully with history and culture. Learn more at humanitiesnebraska.org. My guest today has been Todd Hatton, Program Director of NPR's Omaha member station, KIOS. Todd, thank you so much for being on the show.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: That's the end of this week's show. The magnificent Marion Fay helped produce the show. Lives is an executive production of Squish Talks. I'm your host, Stuart Chittenden. Join me next week for more community, conversation, and the people that bring community to life.